Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, I'm with Dunstan Nicole Wilson, and we're going to talk about sickle cell disease. Hi, Dunstan. How are you today? Hello. Hi, Sylvain. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Um, as I'm sure uh, our listeners know by now, uh, I love asking people for their favorite song or a song that means something specific to them. So what's your song? So my song is Pepas by Faruko. Um, so the reason why I chose this song is because I was recently in Tulum and one of the songs that they played in all of the clubs or the beach clubs were um, was this song, Pepas. And I love when a memory is associated to a song and it just takes me back to the nice sun, sea, sand um, of that holiday and just spending it with my friends. So that's why I chose this song today because I thought it's the most recent current song that I'm like, yes, I'm enjoying this. Nice. I like that as well when like you can go back to the place you first heard the song um, and it sounds like a, a very nice memory that must bring sunshine in a not so sunny uh, England at the moment. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and do you speak Spanish? Because the song is in Spanish, if I'm not wrong. It is in Spanish. Um, so embarrassingly, I did Spanish up until A-level, but currently I'm really rusty. I haven't practiced it as much as I should have. So I would say I'm like understanding well, but not convers con having good conversations in Spanish currently. So you wouldn't be able to un understand all the lyrics then? No, no, no. Well, that's that's my situation uh, with songs in English. <laughs> so I usually like songs more for the um, the tune than the lyrics. Actually, mm, that makes sense. I think I think a lot of that song, yeah, it, it's mainly the yeah. Uh, so today we're talking about a condition that affects you: sickle cell disease. Uh, first question I'd like to ask is how did you realize that you have the disease? Um, so that's actually an interesting question because it's a genetic condition. So it's something I was born with. So my parents knew that I had sickle cell. But in terms of my own awareness of being different or having a genetic condition, I'd say I probably understood that more from about the age of five onwards I think as a kid it was like oh this is what happens you know to everyone and then when you begin to go to school and you integrate with others you're like oh no no <laughs> um, people can play outside and um, run around and things without any consequences whereas with me it was a little bit different um, having sickle cell um, to expand on that a little bit further, just draw the question that you will ask me later. Um, so sickle cell, the way it affects me, it's a uh, um, so it's a genetic condition which affects the red blood cells. Um, and what that means is that normal red blood cells are like bouncy and round and nicely shaped, and they carry oxygen pretty well. But in sickle cell um, patients, what happens to those red blood cells is, is that they transform into these sickle shapes. 
um, which are rigid and sticky and they can clog together in the veins. Um, so when that happens, it causes like severe pain as these sickled shaped blood cells clog together. Okay. And then as the blood, wherever the blood flows is wherever, um, this clog can happen. So one of the main, one of this, well, not one of the main, one of the symptoms of having a uh, sickle cell could potentially be a stroke because of where, when the blood cells are clogged, wherever the blood flows, as I mentioned, that includes the brain, the knees, the legs, kidneys, etc. So it can mm-hmm. cause severe organ damage as well. Um, and that pain episode is known as a crisis. And so when I was, a, when I was younger, when I would play around and exert myself, I would be um, putting a lot of stress on my body. And when you put a lot of stress on your body, sometimes it can cause this crisis, this phenomena that I'm talking about where the cells would clog together in certain vessels and cause immense pain. So as a kid, when you're running around having fun, um, you don't really care about the stress that you put on your body. And then all of a sudden you end up in pain. And so that is um, how I began to realize that now I have this genetic condition, which is a little bit different to everyone else. And it causes me to have immense pain. Wow. That's something that I hear a lot about, actually, that um, people growing up with conditions that affect mobility, affect your ability to uh, be as active as most kids are, uh, is something that is quite difficult. And hearing that you were aware of it from the age of five is very young actually to to be aware that you have a condition that makes you different from others and i don't i don't necessarily like the word uh different but like i think you've used it yourself uh but yeah that means that you can't you can't do the same as as all the kids how how did that affect you like growing up um it was quite difficult because i think I always, and I was raised with the mentality that I could do whatever I want. Um, so I sort of continued having that kind of ideal. So I would continue to play, have fun, um, et cetera. But then I began to link the crises that I would eventually have with excitement. So, um, for example, if I found out I was going to a theme park or something like that, I would be really excited, but also jumping around because I'm a kid. I'm like, yeah, I'll go into a theme park. But then, um, but then that excitement would then often lead to, um, having a crisis. Mm -hmm. So I began to kind of think of things and in terms of like, oh, it's because I'm excited. That's why I'm experiencing this pain. So I need to calm down. Mm -hmm. And so I think. Um, a lot of the times when I got a lot of good news or anything like that, I would try my best to not be excited about things, which is quite sad because as a kid, you know, every, you're easily excitable. Everything is yeah. interesting. Everything is fun. So um, it was really hard to navigate that when I was younger because I didn't really understand the links between exertion, dehydration, tiredness, which are like um, common predispositions towards having a crisis. I didn't really understand that at the time. So all it was for me was just me being excited. So I had to like be calm. And I think that's also translated now as an adult into like my personality. I tend to be quite more calm about things and I'm not always like jumping around in excitement because as a kid, that was linked to pain for me. Yeah. Wow. Um, And how, how quickly does 
like running around, jumping around affect you? How quickly does it become painful? Oh, uh, it depends on the day. Um, so when I was younger, it felt like it was almost instantaneous. Um, really? It felt almost as if I was, I think one of my earliest memories is um, my mom's wedding, actually, and having a crisis like that affected my stomach um, area. And I remember that at the start of the day, it was absolutely fine. Um, it was it was like, oh, this is an exciting time and I was trying to be cool about it. Then yeah. the middle of the day, I was in pain and just trying to pretend that I was okay so that, you know, it wouldn't take away from what the day was. Um, mm. But then, again, it was kind of like, why Why is this happening to me? Why does this happen? I don't understand. Um, so I think there was, I had a lot more questions in my childhood about why, why am I experiencing this pain and like, no one else has to go through it or when I'd explain it to other kids, they didn't really know what it was. So it was kind of struggling with that um, and not really having education about it because at that age, you expect your teachers to know everything. So they're supposed to explain, oh, you have to do this and that, but, you know, teachers are not <laughs> scientists or doctors. No. So they won't necessarily have that information for a condition that isn't as uh, commonly known. Yeah, I'd love it if teachers could embrace those situations and, and use them to raise awareness in a way, because like you, you would have a small crowd of like your classroom, it would be an opportunity to raise awareness. Uh, but I don't think that's something that's commonly done in schools. Um. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, I don't think so. But I think I have seen more now, like, parents of kids with, like, genetic conditions being more engaged with their teachers and kind of explaining what it is so that, the like you said, the little classroom understands what's a little bit different about this child in particular and they can kind of embrace those differences because everyone has differences. Um, so I think I've seen that being a bit more positive because there's also a cultural within within my communities or the black community about sharing health conditions it's it's not it's kind of frowned upon in a way sometimes like you know you should keep it to yourself yeah. and having a genetic condition like sickle cell where i present not looking any different like it's sometimes i wonder if it's e if it would be easier if sickle cell did have a a look so that people could say oh yeah that person has sickle cell but because it's invisible in a way um it's it's sometimes people look at me and say, oh, you look fine. Um, you don't look like you have sickle cell, but you know, there's something, something else happening internally. Um, so it's about raising awareness, like you said, in those smaller groups, and then it leads on to a bigger effect on a bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true with a lot of conditions that affect, that, that, that lead to pain uh, and how you, manage this pain and how it affects you in general. And I, and I assume it could affect people with sickle cell differently as well. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So um, it's my, for example, for my uh, condition with sickle cell, um, pain, these pain crises is like my main symptom. But for other people, they have other kind of symptoms as well, which are 
affect them more. So it could be jaundice or extreme fatigue or okay. um, some organ damage or avascular necrosis as well as the secondary condition that I have because of sickle cell. Um, so yeah, there's because it affects the blood and then in turn the organs and the bones as well because wherever the blood flows, um, anywhere could receive some kind of damage or lingering effects because of sickle cell. Uh, okay, wow. Um, so going back to what you you started with, you said that your parents knew that you had sickle cell. Is that something they knew from uh, before birth through blood tests, or or did they discover that after birth? So they discovered that after birth. Um, okay. So they both had the sickle cell trait, um, but as immigrants from Sierra Leone. Um, the healthcare system wasn't really oops, sorry. The healthcare system wasn't really um, in place to um, test for that. So they both had no idea that they had the trait. They had me, um, so there was okay. a twenty five percent chance that I would have sickle cell mm-hmm. um, based on them both having the trait. And then when I was born, they were informed that yes, you, um, your son has sickle cell. And then it was from there they had to deal with the repercussions of that okay and did they have any support at all to know how to handle it no no (laughs) no um i think one of uh one of the things that's a disappointment with i mean back in that time as well um when i would say that was 30 years ago Mm -hmm. um it was kind of like oh you know your son has sickle cell that's the test and go off and find out about it kind of thing. I hope to say now that there's more information about it available, but I know there are some parents that have struggled to find the resources necessary to, you know, how do you deal with something that you never expected to deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think my parents kind of learned as they went along. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that must be that must be hard, and also for yourself because I assume you had questions that they didn't necessarily have answers to. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and like my, I think where I got most of my information from was from my pediatricians. Um, they were really good at answering questions, um, asking about things that I hadn't experienced before or things mm-hmm. that I would potentially experience. Um, so my ped- my pediatric team were really good with answering those questions um, at that in that period. Oh, that's good. So how how painful is it then? Is it something that you can manage and, and how do you how how have you adapted to to the pains? So the best description I always use is that if you imagine your hand uh, in between a car door and then the car door being repeatedly slammed, really? that's kind of like the level of pain that I'm describing when I say a crisis. And then that pain um, happens continuously because it's, you know, your blood is constantly going through wherever yeah. that blockage is. And that's the pain that you're experiencing. Um, but usually when you go into hospital, they'll ask you what your pain score is, like from a one to 10. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I tend to manage at home 
my pain from one till about seven and then eight to ten is when I'm like I have to go into hospital because I can't manage it at home okay but in that case do you need support to go to the hospital or is it something you can do yourself yeah no so the kind of pain that means I have to go into hospital means I'm completely debilitated I can't oh, move okay. I can't do anything for myself um it's usually when the ambulance has to come with a stretcher from wherever I am and take me into the um ambulance and then off to hospital we go so it's very much like uh, I can't manage this um I would say from one till about three I can do my daily activities just mm -hmm. taking medication and continuing then from about three to six it's very much like very minimal I'll move if I have to okay. um but I'm on medication for opioids to try and help take the pain lower mm -hmm. and then from above six is where I really need support and I can't really move around and I think normally I would probably go to hospital from about five but because of experiences that I've had in hospital and things like that I tend to the hospital for me is a last resort I'm sure okay. we'll come into that as well but that's mm -hmm. just how my pain score scale works for me and the the medication you take addresses the pain but do you have any medication to address the blockage so no um so it's kind of um in terms of the blockage it's usually like uh a lot of water to try and help dilute what's happening and okay. then the and then over time it kind of clears itself up um for what works for me is um opioids so really strong medications um which can help alleviate the pain and then my body kind of figures out the rest um for other patients with sickle cell sometimes they'll need a blood transfusion um mm. because their blood is like above a certain percentage of sickled which means that you know 80% of their blood needs to be changed or 90% of their blood needs to be changed. So that's why some, that's why blood transfusions or exchange transfusions is also another form of treatment for other patients. But for me, I haven't yet had one. Okay. And do you, so you, so you mentioned that there's a risk of stroke. Is that a risk as soon as you have a blockage? How, I, so, I, how do you manage that that risk then because like I, I assume there's not much you can do about it yeah so stroke is a uh, the risk factor for stroke is highest when you're young um, as okay. a child um, then as an adult it seems to not be as prevalent um, okay. but it does still again because it's a genetic condition it impacts everyone differently so mm -hmm. for me um, I haven't had a I haven't had a stroke um so or I might have had a silent stroke I don't know I haven't had a CT scan to double check but um yeah. I've not had a stroke so I guess when I do feel a crisis coming on I'm always kind of worried about where it's going to settle so the kind of sensation that I feel now as an adult when a crisis is happening is I have a I call it a pre-crisis it's like a 10 minute window where I can feel the change begin to happen. 
mm-hmm. and then that's when I need to start taking my medications and things like that to try and reduce how long it's going to last because the quicker you act um the shorter the length of the crisis if that makes sense so so for me when I have that 10 minute window it's like okay get your medication get lots of water let's start kind of getting myself hydrated and things like that and then I kind of have to wait for it to settle wherever it's going to settle in my body so I don't know I don't know straight away where a crisis is going to happen is going to happen but I do feel the movement around it's a really weird sensation it's like kind of like you're starting to feel the pain but it hasn't yet landed in one place um so for me it tends to land in my knees my back um my joints mainly for me okay wow it must be yeah i imagine it must be a very very weird sensation um And so you mentioned having to go to, to hospital. What, what do they do? What else do they do that, that you can do at, at home? So hospital um, for me is usually when my medications don't work. So at hospital, okay. there's an alternative or a higher dose of said medication, um, which they can give to at least get the pain stabilized. So hospital for me is really about pain management. Um, So I'm no longer able to manage it at home. Um, I haven't been able to sleep or something like that for at least a day, that kind of thing. So it's like, okay, I need need some kind of stronger intervention. Additionally, as I mentioned before, that, you know, triggers like tiredness, dehydration, but there's also sometimes infection can be um, one of the triggers, like, as someone who has sickle cell, you tend to have a weaker immune system. Um, so infections are quite common. So sometimes when you go into hospital, they're also trying to see if there is an infection which they can treat and give you antibiotics for that as well. Um, so I'd say me going into hospital is more because what I'm doing at home isn't working. Okay. Well, you must realize that the hard way, because I imagine that you've gone through your 10-minute window, you've tried to address it at home, and it's still not addressing it. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So I'm for me, the hospital is like the ultimate last resort. Like if, yeah. I, if <laughs> there'll be times I'm at home and I can barely walk, and I just as long as I can get the stuff around me, um, it's enough where like I feel like, because everyone's pain threshold is different as well. Some people might go in as soon as they start to feel that 10 minute or that window, if they do experience that again, I'm not sure how, if other people have that sort of pre-warning period. Um, but yeah, depending on how you manage pain, how you deal with pain, you know, people could be going into hospital a lot sooner than I do. Um, I think for me, it's based off of like bad experiences and just not enjoying the process of going to hospital and then missing out on things like work or being at home I'm just very much like I have to (laughs) I think it's something with because I've missed out a lot on things in terms of like maybe some a couple of school days or Mm -hmm. work days and things like that I it's really a last resort for me to disrupt my daily routine to go to hospital um it's I just I just think it's just something I don't think it's the best because I think 
there are times I probably should have gone to hospital. Yeah. Um, but I'd rather, like you said, I guess, do it the hard way before getting yeah. there. And when you when you go to the hospital, is I is there anything that recognizes you as having sickle cell? Do you have quicker access to treatment or do you have to go through A&E like everyone else? So um, I guess this is a good point to talk about my experience in hospital over time. So yeah. my worst experience in hospital is 2012 where um, it was a really bad crisis. Nothing was working at home. Um, and then I called the ambulance. The ambulance took a really long time to get to me because it wasn't mm -hmm. a priority. Um, sickle cell wasn't a priority for them. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it's like the quicker you act, the better. Mm -hmm. um, no, the shorter the crisis period. So the ambulance came. Um, the the paramedics were asking me questions that weren't relevant to sickle cell or anything like. They just they had no idea what they were dealing with, kind of. Um, but luckily I had my mum to advocate for me during mm -hmm. that period. So she was able to answer some of the questions. And, you know, if you think about the pain I'm describing, it's really hard to answer questions and be yeah. polite and things like that. Yeah. Um, so then I get to hospital and I'm just left in a room. Um, and it was like a cold room as well. And one of the other things that, um, is another trigger is like cold weather, um, and cold and just, real sharp changes in temperature so oh, okay. i've gone from like being kept warm in my house to in this really cold room where i'm waiting to receive some kind of treatment mm -hmm. again it feels like hours have gone past my mom has left the room several times to try and get some help no one's really coming and then it's a junior doctor that eventually comes and the first thing that they give me is um paracetamol and so <laughs> okay. i've I've described the kind of pain of what it feels like and how, you know, I've gone through all the medication at home and, you know, paracetamol is an over-the-counter, out-of-the-counter drug. So I, I definitely had that already yeah. um, at home. So um, when that happened, it almost felt like, what's the point? Um, mm -hmm. And I remember in that period, it was, I suffered a really severe mental break because I was like, why does no one care and I'm in a place where they're supposed to care like why how can I come with this kind of pain and they're giving me paracetamol it kind of just felt like the world just didn't care about my pain um so after that I was then taken to the right ward and they were started me on um one of the stronger opioids to help bring the pain down and then I began to get the treatment that I was supposed to be getting but that whole traumatic period kind of warped my um, my mentality of what it means to go to a hospital because I'm not sure of the kind of treatment I'm going to get. I'm not sure they're going to know what sickle cell is. And that was really, really scary in 2012 um, because, as I mentioned, being as a child, my pediatric team was really good. So whenever mm -hmm. I did have these crises, they knew exactly what to do. Um, they treated me like a child with sickle cell. But then yeah. being an adult in 2012, it was a completely different experience. It was like, what is sickle cell? Who are you? What do we need to give you? Like, it was just very much, as an adult, they just didn't really care. Um, so then after that, I started a streak of 
I think I went six years without going to hospital. Um, that isn't because I didn't have any crises or anything like that. I, I just decided that I'd rather manage it at home because of that experience in 2012. So okay. each, each day I was counting, I'm out of hospital, I'm out of hospital, I'm out of hospital for six years, um, which is a really unhealthy obsession. So yeah. then when I did eventually, when I did eventually, um, go to hospital in 2018, again, it was devastating. It felt like, a massive loss because I'd spent the last six years out and now I'm back again and then it felt like my I'd reverted back to how I was in 2012 like I can't do anything for myself the pain is too much I can't do life that those were the kind of negative thoughts that were um creeping in because of those six years of because I'm out I'm like everyone else because I'm not in hospital I'm like I can do whatever because I'm not in hospital the world is my oyster but as soon as I went back in it felt like I'd lost all of that um so yeah it it my hospital experiences really impacted me mentally um in terms of how I manage my condition well that's that's very sounds very intense and very hard on on how you what you think about yourself all that from essentially a bad hospital experience is well it, it, yeah sounds very very intense how do you feel now if you have to go to the hospital is it something you've you feel better about or does it still affect you mentally um so after 2018's experience like that mental break um i i did go through some therapy to help me try to understand and embrace having sickle cell because i think from 2012 to 2018 sickle cell was my uh thing in the closet like i just didn't Mm, mention it i didn't really talk about it um it was my secret and i was dunston and that was it but mm-hmm. then going through therapy, it's like I had to embrace having sickle cell, become comfortable with it, understand it, and then be open about it. So those were my kind of actions from going through therapy. Okay. And so now at this stage in 2023, um, I still don't want to go to hospital. <laughs> Nobody does. Um, but I am less afraid if I have to. I will embrace I will embrace that okay I can't do this by myself I need further help or intervention and then I will go in but um I've also sort of prepared a little bit more for that eventuality so now I have a copy of my protocol um which I can just kind of like share with whoever's on on shift like this is how you're supposed to treat me here you go yeah um so that kind of eliminates some of the things. And I think since 2012, there have been improvements in how sickle cell patients are triaged into A&E. Okay. Um, but again, it's, you know, no one wants to go to hospital. So I wouldn't say it's something that I, I now am willing to do. I think probably at a five is when I could probably say I should go to hospital, but I'm still keeping it at seven just to make sure. <laughs> yeah. I can treat it myself. Yeah. Well, the protocol 
must be really helpful actually because you mentioned earlier that when in, you're in such a level of pain you can't really answer questions and I imagine that it makes you it could make you a bit like sound a bit frustrated or or even sometimes aggressive I don't know or straight away and when you're on the receiving end people who don't understand your level of pain may wonder why you're in 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 that state of mind so yeah that that must be helpful yeah no definitely it wasn't and the thing is it wasn't something that was suggested by my care team it was a friend of mine who said but if something happens to you how do I know what to what to say or what to show to them and I was like that's a good question um so I literally went to my um hematologist and I said can I have a copy of my protocol and they were like yeah sure and they sent me an email I was like wow was it that easy like it just wasn't it's just not something that is commonly done um so I think yeah you're right the protocols really helped and again when you think about um certain stigmas when it comes to sickle cell um because it's not a visible thing when we do go into A&E sometimes we're seen as drug seeking because of the kind of medication that we uh, are requesting okay. yeah. um and <laughs> those racial um barriers can cause problems because again you mentioned being in that kind of pain makes me could I could be aggressive when answering questions and things mm -hmm. like that but then you know I I have that in my mind to not be aggressive because I want to make sure I'm treated fairly whereas yeah. I feel like other patients can be however they want they can be shouting they can be screaming and still get the treatment that they deserve but yeah. then on my end or um as a person as a black man I I don't have that luxury um I have to make sure that I present in a way that isn't aggressive or is seen as scary or drug seeking because I need to make sure I'm treated for my pain so again there's that balancing act so having the protocol is really helpful because I can just show it and hopefully you know that it removes that disbelief like I can't see anything wrong with you um yeah. you look you you look like a drug seeker because there's nothing wrong with you clearly visibly mm -hmm. but then I show my protocol and it has all the scientific information there Yeah. about what it, what I what I need and what I'm going through. I can't believe that we're in 2023 and we're having like you're having these sorts of hoops you have to jump through. Um but yeah, that could be a completely whole over discussion um which I'm sure you're very passionate about. So I'd like to to uh, focus on something else, but jumping on, on, on something that you mentioned earlier, that between 2012 and 2018, like you didn't talk about sequel cell. You wanted to hide it as much as possible. And you share with me that you find that men share less about their health condition than than women is this something that's related to that or or not and could, could we talk about that a bit more yeah sure no i would say i would say so because so 
in that period was when I was doing university um, and my and I just started working like professionally. So I didn't want to be seen as anything else. Like I already had, um, I guess, things working against me. So my social economic background, um, my race, um, the the kind of way I had to learn to present myself to the world. Mm-hmm. I thought if I then included sickle cell on top of that, there's just there's just gonna be more judgment, more um negative perceptions of who I am. So I've always I've kind of grown up with that um work really hard and then there's no reason for anyone to have any like prejudice against you. So yeah. but then I felt like having sickle cell and when you Google sickle cell and you see pain or unable to do certain things, I felt like my future employer might see that I have sickle cell and they might think, oh no, he won't be able to keep up with the demands of work. Or Mm, um, at university, it was kind of like, um, I just want to fit in with everyone else. So I don't want people to worry that, you know, I might end up in pain or have to go to hospital and things. I just want to be like everyone else. So I think, for me, it was really important. It felt really important to hide that sickle cell because there wasn't a space amongst um, society, let alone just within my community, to be able to speak about having a chronic condition and just being accepted as just Dunstan. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what it felt like. So when I say, and then as a man as well, going through like dating and things like that, um, I just didn't want to be seen as less than or weaker or you know you're just your typical um stereotypical masculinity tropes where it's like a man must be strong mm-hmm. a man must provide you can't show weakness that kind of thing so i think for me sickle cell was all of that sickle cell was weakness sickle cell was um unable to provide and it was the complete opposite of what it me- what it meant to be a masculine man so mm-hmm. then i had to hide it so that i could be that um that image. and then that image exactly yeah. so that period was very much dunstan masculine man nothing's wrong with him he's just like everyone else and goes to the gym and etc blah, blah 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 but then what was really happening internally was something different which i was i'd go to the quiet of my room and just handle the pain whatever pain i'm in then come out and then act like nothing has happened um so yeah it was so when i say that um i feel like men don't speak about it i feel like those are some of the reasons why um it's like there's an image to present um and i never met any other or many i didn't meet many other men that spoke about sickle cell um and i would say i was encouraged by other women that have sickle cell to speak about it because I saw them in social media or other things speaking about it and I was like wow that's really powerful thing to speak about mm-hmm. but I still I still kept quiet <laughs> and then in 2018 after that crisis and then I think that was also the first time my friends saw me in that kind of pain in that environment in hospital and they were like you, you didn't tell us it was this bad you didn't speak up you need to speak about it you need to share your story and things like that that's when i began this journey of advocacy and sharing and 
you know, this is what my life is like, Christopher. So. And is there some positive aspect for you, like from the, the how people perceive you, maybe, or mentally about like sharing? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I often feel like I should have shared sooner um, because at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to work for a company that didn't embrace all of me, for example. Um, you know, and I think with the pandemic, the pandemic showed how much companies can adjust to make sure the work is still done. So, you know, working from home was seen as impossible um, during that, you know, before the pandemic. Yet, I would have times where I'd have crises in my legs and still try and make it to work because, you know, I I wanted to be seen that I could do the work, and you know, that wasn't good for my that wasn't good for my health at all. Shouldn't have done it. Would not recommend. But now, and now that I can work from home, I could I could just say, do you know what? I'm just going to work from home. Um, or I'm feeling a little bit sick, so I'm just gonna, you know, do what I can, and then I'll catch up later. Whereas yeah. in that period that I was talking about, that could that was not really a possibility, probably frowned upon as well. Um, so I feel like now, I actually no, I'll probably say now, I'm very happy and confident speaking about it because where I work now, for example, they do make that kind, they do have the understanding, that allowance, and I've been very open from the beginning. Even in my introduction to the company, I was like, yeah, I also do sickle cell advocacy and things like that. And it sparks conversations with colleagues and things like that um, mm -hmm. and being in that space. And also every little bit that I do to thread in sickle cell raises awareness somewhere, somehow, and changes that negative stereotype that, you know, people with sickle cell can't do what everyone else does, which is incorrect. We just have to do it a little bit differently, which I feel like is the same with a lot of chronic conditions um yeah. or people with disabilities it's like you know there are alternative ways to do the same thing we just have to be creative about it yeah 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 i agree and i definitely see like talking with other people uh with different conditions that it, it affects ability to work it affects ability to be as active as others but it doesn't affect the ability to have a, a similar life and achieve similar goals. Um, so it's very good to hear like the, the positive aspect of, of advocacy. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, but I, I also, I wanted to comment on something you said about like being able to work from home now and the flexibility. Like when you look 10 years ago, there wasn't that flexibility. I mean, I remember like, the company I work for, I think we, we started all having laptops 10 or 11 years ago. So like physically you couldn't do it to start with. So it, it's good to see how much progress has been done because I think like at an individual level, and I don't know if you agree with that, but people were probably as open, but it's more at a company level where there wasn't that openness to accept different lifestyles or different uh, abilities to work similar hours or, or similarly as others. 
yeah no exactly even like that just reminded me just before the pandemic um all the restrictions kicked in in the uk my director was um a little bit like reluctant to get us all laptops because um there was this feeling that we wouldn't need to work from home but then when mm-hmm. it did happen and then when we all had to get our laptops when we all had to work from home because it was like mandatory like i feel like she embraced it so much and was like oh wow like why, why haven't we been doing this and yeah. she'd also been traveling from so far just to get to work and then you realize that yeah no there was there was this like i guess it was a it's a cultural shift really like yeah. you know you have to go into work and wake up and get on the tube and make it to your you know to your office on time and get your coffee but yeah eliminate all of that you still you're still quite just as productive yeah 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 definitely well that, that's a really amazing conversation uh and i feel like we could go deeper in so many subjects but unfortunately we're we've got a certain amount of time um i, I love finishing on on one question that i ask everyone um what is your happy place so somewhere where you feel at peace oh um the first thing that came to mind for me is um a beach in sierra leone um which is where my uh parents are from um and i remember going there and i was like wow this is probably one of the first times i feel at home and at peace so that that for me um yeah it's number two beach in syria freetown syria oh that sounds amazing uh, i want to be there <laughs> <laughs> yeah All right. Well, Dunstan, thank you so much for sharing. It's been extremely interesting. Uh, and yeah, it's so good to hear uh, about like the positive that comes out of, of advocacy. Uh, so yeah, thank you for sharing about that as well. Um, and yeah, hopefully uh, you don't have to go to hospital too much, but when you do, it, it goes well and uh, your protocol helps. Thank you. Thank you.